Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is episode three of The Long Tale. Go back and listen to episode one and two if you want to know what the hell is going on. This is Troy Hollings with a Curiously Disagreeable Podcast, and thank you for tuning in. In episode one and episode two, our hero, the great Chris Anderson, has taken us on this journey. This journey about the internet and about how the world is changing, about how a revolution greater than the industrial revolution is going to change our society. In episode one, he introduced the concept. In episode two, he talked about what are the what are the three things that create the long tail, and that's everybody can create content, connecting the supply and demand, and helping me find what I'm looking for with filters and recommendations. And now here, I know I alluded to it, but Chris is going to tell us, so what? What does this all mean? And he starts off with with something that I'm almost afraid that Richard Koch, who I call Mr. Cock, is going to just apparate into Chris's house and snap his fucking neck. Because Chris starts out with a title, Scarcity, Abundance, and the Death of the 80-20 Rule. Now I almost threw my phone, I almost yelled, but I'm holding it together. So Chris explains the 80-20 rule. I, I explain it as well, listen to the 80-20 podcast. Basically, quick, quick summary is that a small portion of things are real important, then a lot of shit is not that important. Chris does a better job of explaining that, but that's what 80-20 is. That is the 80-20 and what the 80-20 rule is. And the 80-20 rule is a power law. And so Chris says, what are power laws? And power laws are a family of curves that you can find practically anywhere you look, from biology to book sales. Power law is when things aren't uniformly distributed. So, you know, a few things are really important and a bunch of things aren't. And Chris says, though, that the long tail is a power law that isn't cruelly cut off by bottlenecks and distribution, such as limited shelf space and available channels. And because this power law, this this long tail that we've talked about, this this hill that's slowly descending, approaches but never reaches zero. As the curve stretches out to infinity, it's known as a long-tailed curve. And that's where he got the name for the book, he says. And I don't think it's super important to understand what power laws are. Like, obviously, I'm not a freaking mathematician, but um, just think of like a YouTube comment, uh, YouTube comment section. There's going to be one, two, five, ten comments that are hilarious and really, really upvoted. And there's probably going to be 2,000 comments that, you know, have a couple upvotes. So that is a, a power law. The 80-20 rule is a power law. Blah, 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 blah. But Chris's critique of the 80-20 principle is that let's, so, so it, it, it exists. It's true. You know, there's 20% of movies out there that generate 80% of the overall revenue. And if you're a movie theater or even a, a movie company, you know, you're going to try to find those few big hits. Okay, cool. But Chris poses the question, so we, we only care about the 20% of films that generate 80% of the revenue, right? 
Well, this is where Chris disagrees. You know, that might make sense if you're like a movie studio and you're investing in making a hit. But like we've talked about, as we get away from the head of the curve, AKA, you know, the 20%, there's a hidden power in the not 20%. And the lesson that we is that we, we thought what was naturally the sharp drop off in demand for movies after a certain point was actually just an artifact of the traditional costs of offering them. In other words, give people unlimited choice, make it easy to find what they want, and you'll discover that demand keeps going on and on and on into niches that were never even considered before. Instructional videos, karaoke, Turkish TV, you got it. And this is where Chris bought himself a couple more minutes of life. You know, Mr. Cock at the plane fueled, ready to drop from the sky, snap Chris's neck. But Chris is really only guilty of a clickbaity title. The 80-20 rule is alive and well, he said. Thank God! What Chris is really talking about is a misinterpretation of the 80-20 rule. And he says one of the most pernicious, uh, troublesome, misinterpretations is to assume that the 80-20 rule is an invitation to carry only the 20% of goods that account for the most sales. And this derives from the observation that the 80-20 rule is fundamentally an encouragement to be discriminating in what you carry. Because if you guess right, the product can have a disproportionately large effect on your business. This is why I've described the long tales, the death of the 80-20 rule, even though it's actually nothing of the sort. No, bitch, you're just trying to hurt Mr. Cox's feelings and get some page views. Chris acknowledges that the real 80-20 rule is just the acknowledgement that a Pareto distribution, so Pareto, Vilfredo Pareto, the Italian guy who discovered it, Pareto distribution is basically just saying, but the 80-20 rules at work, and some things sell a lot better than others, which is just as true in long-tail markets as it is in traditional markets. So I forgive Chris. I'm still kind of mad at him for that little clickbaity title. I thought I was going to have to, like, cancel his whole podcast series because 80-20 principles is my religion. But it uh, turns out he was just he was just trying to, trying to be controversial. But he does make a good, good point here. What the long-tail offers, however, is the encouragement to not be dominated by the rule. Now, even if 20% of the products account for 80% of the revenue, there's no reason not to carry the other 80% of products if there's no fucking cost to do it. Who knows? With good search and good recommendations, maybe some of that shitty bottom 80% actually turns out to be pretty good. Whew. Okay, you redeemed yourself, Chris. I don't have to find you and kill you. Because a traditional retailer totally wants to follow the 80-20 principle because each slot costs a bunch of money so you know you want to make sure that each each bit of shelf space is maximized but if it doesn't cost anything well you might as well just have everything and he gives a he gives a good hypothetical example so uh just talking about a long tail retailer um let's assume it has 10 times as much inventory that's reasonable so in this hypothetical example the 20 percent of products that make up most of the revenue become just two percent of the long tail retailers inventory as per the bottom graph by the book uh, the revenue picture in the second bar reflects the natural consequences of a power law distribution so what he's basically saying is that the top two percent of products still account for a disproportionate share of the sales say 50 percent but the next eight percent of products account for the next 25 percent of the sales and the bottom 90 percent of products account for the remaining 25% of sales. Um, and he says, although this is a hypothetical example, the numbers are quite close to the actual statistics of Netflix. So what that's illustrating 
is like, yes, if you had gunned your head, you had to pick which title is going or which titles are going to generate the most revenue. You totally follow the 80-20 principle. But when you don't have to do that, you can just offer everything, you care a little bit less about what's the 20%. And it makes sense to host everything. Let the people find what they want. And this is where Chris talks a lot about, you know, if if you're Jeff Bezos, you really care about the following sections, but I'm gonna breeze through it because we're just baboons. Um, but he says, where long tail economics really shines, however, is the third bar, read the book, uh, profits. Because of the low cost of inventory, the margins on non-hits can be far higher in long tail markets than in traditional brick and mortar. He says, you know, if you're brick and mortar, you gotta deal with the hits. But if you're not, you can shift that demand farther down the tail, creating a market that wasn't so dependent on new releases. Uh, think about it, like if you charge one million loyal grandmas who love to knit $10 a month to use your knitting support service, I mean, that's $10 million a month of revenue from a group that nobody would view that as a good demographic. And what that also means for us is that there's gonna be helly niches out there in the future and there's gonna be a bunch of people getting rich who wouldn't have before. I want some of that gold. Now, uh, nerd alert here, uh, demand curves. We gotta remember that Chris is smart as fuck. I mean, he spent, he spent years just trying to make this book intelligible for people like us and, and did like a, a decent job. So I'm gonna talk about some of this stuff, but it's, it's a little bit more, if you're nerdy and into economics, which I kinda am, but I more just want some gold. But um, he says, one of the main questions that came up as he got deeper into quantifying long tail markets was how, how the overall increase in variety affected the shape of the demand curve. And he, he does a really interesting example. So, you know, let's say you've got, I think there's an experiment that he run, ran or looked at some data or whatever, but um, if you got a, you got a store with a bunch of stuff and then you've got the same company has an online version. So we'll say Walmart online versus Walmart. And what he, what he finds is that even those that shop in the store and online tend to buy further down the tail online. Basically what that's saying is that when you go in the store, you just have those traditional preferences. You know, you're like, okay, I'm gonna buy this, I'm gonna buy that. But when online, because there's more choice, even Walmart online has more choice, people tend to already just buy more diverse stuff. And he talks about music, he talks about talks about movies, and so really all of what he's trying to illustrate here is that um, the demand curve is, is much flatter. So music, you know, uh, is much less dominated in, online by the top hits. So offline, in brick and mortar retailers, the top 1,000 albums make up nearly 80% of the total market. And he says, indeed, in a typical big box retailer, which carries just a fraction of available CDs, the top 100 albums can account for more than 90% of the sales. So that's crazy. Uh, but he says, by contrast, online, that same top 1,000 top accounts for less than a third of the market. So seen another way, a full half of online market is made up of albums beyond the top 5,000. And all that that's saying is that what we thought was like, we're humans, we do this, we love the big hits. When you give them, when you, you give people unlimited choice, they just start fragmenting. And so this is just, this is a, just a foreshadowing of what happens when the internet is unleashed. And another good point he makes though is, 
you know, uh, there's this question of, well, there's a finite amount of time. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and people aren't really probably spending more time watching movies, more time reading books. And, but he says, I may not read any more words than I once did, but they're more likely to be meaningful to me. So that is it. You know, I might not consume any more content than I really did in 1995, but now with the internet, I legitimately, I, I only consume content that I really like. Like I, I that's, I, I truly, the only bit pieces of content that I bring in, I mean, maybe if I'm a, at a bar and there's sports on in the background or something, but like I am, there's 10 wellsprings that I go to that I, I love the content and I just rotate between those. And I, I honestly now, only consume things that I really like, and that is a function of the long tail, and that is where we are going. He talks about the long tail of time, and how you know, with with the traditional you know mainstream media and you know brick and mortar stores, new is the best. So like last season's thing, and the season before last, you know that's basically those things don't sell at all. Um, but when you look online, Google is is not quite time agnostic. So time agnostic would mean like old things get recommended just as much as new things but it does measure relevance mostly in term of terms of incoming links not newness so uh, it's a weird thing where you know two seasons ago's lawnmower model from the brick and mortar store is basically defunct steadily gaining incoming links might be bigger now than it was when it was first released like a couple a couple uh, months ago there's this video of a 12 year old kid camping in the wilderness that was like eight years old and all of the comments were like hey the the search engine sent me here this is interesting search engine sent me here then because some obscure kid with no viewers all of a sudden the algorithm happened to by luck pick that and his video from eight years ago popped up again and the result online is that you know the usual decay of popularity for blog posts and online news pages and Know, videos and anything on the internet is now much more gradual than it was and you know, as we're continuing to discuss so we're kind of discussing all these themes and, and what's changing and, and what are attributes of this this potentially new long tail economy that we are going to and uh, Chris is about to about to take a shit on the whole discipline of economics abundance broadly the long tail is about abundance Abundant shelf space, abundant distribution, abundant choice. How awkward then that one of the definitions of economics given by Wikipedia is economics, the social science of choice under scarcity. And Chris says it's hard to overstate how fundamental to economics the notion is that you can't have it all for free. The entire discipline is oriented around studying trade-offs and how they're made. And you know, I majored in econ, I wasn't that good at econ, so like we're gonna walk through this, but um, I think Chris has some points. I'm not sure if he can totally just discount all of economics, but um, you know, Chris says that uh, a person living near town would pay more for rent for his home or live farther away and pay less. In effect, paying the difference out of his convenience. So you know, if you have a longer commute, you pay less. And and since then, so he's talking about like some um, you know economic thought experiment from from days past. Uh, and since then, economics has been all about how to divide finite pies. That's just the way it is. They explicitly do not deal with abundant inputs. You know, it doesn't deny that oxygen is free when you're trying to light a fire. 
It just doesn't include that in its equations. It leaves that to other disciplines such as chemistry. And so Chris is drawing an analogy saying, a lot of what we thought about economics with scarcity is going to be different with the internet because we are entering the era of effectively infinite shelf space and two of the main scarcity functions of traditional traditional economics, the marginal costs of manufacturing and distribution are trending to zero in long tail markets of digital goods where bits can be copied and transmitted at almost no cost. Surely economics has something to say about that. Now, I think I think that I mean he's making a good point. I don't know if if it overturns all of economics, but you know, when when I was an econ major, we definitely talked about scarcity and about marginal cost and how, you know, you you graph on there, you know, what's the supply when it meets with demand. And so, you know, you could definitely supply more, but you'd have to start selling it at a discount. So that equilibrium is when the, you know, you're maximizing your supply. So the amount of people who want it is perfectly satisfied with your demand. It's the most profitable because, you know, the cost of making one more is not worth it because maybe to make one more, you'd have to sell your shit for a dollar cheaper. But now Chris is saying, you know, with the cost of making one more, effectively nothing, it's changing all economics. But I don't know. I feel like I feel like economics doesn't necessarily care about marginal cost. It's more of this concept of constraints in general. And so Chris, he brings it back around and he says, you know, and indeed, in the long tail, for all its power, there are constraints. You know, there might be near infinite selection, but there's still scarcity of human attention and hours in the day. You know, our disposable income is limited. And on some level, it's still a fixed pie game. It says, offer a couch potato, a million TV shows, and he or she may end up watching no more television than before, just different television, better suited to that individual. And then he says, finally, it's worth noting that economics, for all its charms, doesn't have the answer for everything. Many phenomena are simply left to other disciplines. So, I don't know. I feel like there's just always trade-offs. And so, you, know, you if you... If you hoe the field extremely laboriously by hand, and then you get a tractor, you know there's some there's some reduction in production costs. So I, I feel like we're just we're just taking that to its logical extension, and economics is still gonna happen. But I don't know shit. I trust you, Chris. Now where's this where's this bringing us now? Well, it talks about that hits hits are here to stay. You know, it, it's not just this instant gratification, this convenience. We also like to do what other people are doing, and that's why there's always going to be that that unequal power law distribution. Um, you know, the long tail markets just tend to be flatter, but hits will hits will always exist. And so he's going to turn his attention, his massive intellect, to the land of the A list, the hits. And we're going to take a look at both the virtues of shelves and their costs, and likewise their downsides. So the so the benefits of hits is again it's. It's uniting people, it's easy. You turn on the radio, you probably can find something that you kind of like. And he says that successful long tail aggregators need to have both hits and niches. They need to span the full range of variety from the broadest appeal to the narrowest to be able to make the connections that can illuminate a path down the long tail that makes sense to everyone. So what he's basically saying is that if you only have hits, like the record stores did, then you're gonna quickly find people who they want more of this shit. Like, hey, do you have any more records that are like this? Like, I love this. I'm like, nope, sorry. But on the flip side, 
if you only have niches, people are never going to make it, never make it down to your niche. And he brings up the example of old school 1997 mp3.com. And the idea was that this service would bypass the record labels. But the problem was mp3.com only had the long tail. They didn't have any of the record labels. And so there's this chicken or egg problem that happened and they ended up failing. But then you look at the iTunes model and so the iTunes had all that obscure shit that mp3.com had, but they also negotiated deals with the record labels to seed their service with people. You know, cause hey, I've got WAP, Cardi B, I think. I got that song, everybody likes it. And then the recommendations can kick in and and all of a sudden, you know, you're listening to you're listening to the City Girls. That's that's a real band. They're band group. I don't know. They they have trashy music, but sometimes it's good. So how do shelves do it? Well, right now, and we've kind of touched on this a fair amount, but you know, if if you want to rent shelf space, each slot on that shelf is precious, and you gotta you know your 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 stuff has to produce, and. If that weren't bad enough, the hidden cost of selling products on shelves can actually be higher than the direct costs. Uh, you know, and these are largely opportunity costs of products not found. So think of if I want to find, if, if, if my goal to make dinner is I want to do uh, tuna casserole. And so I need, I need egg noodles, I need cream of mushroom soup, I need tuna, I need whatever else is in that, I don't remember. Um, but I go and I walk into the supermarket and I find the tuna. Okay, now I gotta walk all around, and let's say I have eight minutes left. I gotta find the cream of mushroom soup, and then, uh, fuck, I, I gotta find the noodles, wah! Because you gotta think, basically, with the supermarket, with the supermarket, the only search engine is that minimum wage kid who's stocking stuff, as well as, you know, a can of tuna, it can't be in multiple places at once. So that's, like, so obvious in the supermarket. But think about it. You know, if, if I'm trying to make tuna casserole and I go online, you know, there could be five different categories that a can of tuna could be listed in. It could be like easy, easy crock pot meals. Okay. It's in there. It could be in fish. It could be in picnic food because of tuna salad. Because in the internet, on contrast, you know, it's organized by whatever makes sense at the time. There are no categories. There's really, I mean, there, there's kind of categories, but it's, it's more like, there's a big pile of stuff. But then you've got these smart systems, these search engines over the top that just poop on into the desk like, oh, yep, hey, it's this third drawer from the back and this is, uh, here's your gun. So that's a long discussion that we've been circling all around. And where is it bringing us? Well, well, we are entering an era of unprecedented choice. And that's a good thing. There's some question of this, you know, is there, is there a paradox of choices? Are there too many choices? And, and Chris brings up this psychological experiment where uh, people were given a test where there, were, you know, there was one jam that was offered and they really liked it. And then there was like 10 jams and everybody got overwhelmed and confused. And you know, the question is, if there's too many choices, is that, is that gonna make people too confused? Is that a net bad? Uh-uh, Chris says no. And so he says, as it happens, Amazon too sells jam, not six kinds or 10 kinds, but more than 1,200 kinds. But the difference with that experiment 
is that person had no context. You know, they had to pick between 10 random ass jams, and unless they're a jam connoisseur, they knew nothing. But online, however, the consumer has a lot more help. You know, there's there's nearly a an infinite number of techniques to figure out what jam is good. You can sort by price, by ratings, by date, by genre. You can YouTube people reviewing jam. You can find good jam. And the conventional wisdom is right. More choice really is better. But we also have to have the information about that variety and what other consumers before us have done with the same choices. And that's what Google does. Because Chris says, as we close this out, that we're going, we used to be in an or culture. This or that. A zero sum culture. Either my brand of tuna gets to be on the shelf or your brand. But now, both of ours and an and culture because the long tail is nothing more than infinite choice. Abundant, cheap distribution means abundant, cheap, and unlimited variety. And that means the audience goes everywhere. So the world is gonna be dominated in the future by hits, but also by niches. Just like Ben, that, that teenager that we talked about initially, He's gonna watch the newest Rambo, and then he's gonna go home, and he's gonna watch Johnny Scoville eat hot peppers. There's an abundant choice, variety, and a consumer paradise. And Chris goes in and, and talks about the, the nine rules of building a, a long tail business. I don't necessarily think that we all need to, to go through all those, uh, but you know, he's, he, basically, that type of stuff is really relevant if you're like, work at Wired Magazine or, you know, your Jeff Bezos. But but for us, for that, that average person now, you know, accessing the internet somehow, uh, the summary of all that is just be consistent with a niche. Well, God damn it. That is a lot. Maybe the most, again, definitely the most. Had to split it up into three episodes because I can't be talking for 10 hours at once. Um, you know, we started with the horse and buggy. You know, would you ignore this phenomenon called cars? And we talked about that. And then I put forth and Chris reinforced that, that a tidal wave of change is coming. Somewhat already here. 30,000 times more disruptive than the horse and buggy. The long tail of the internet. Where books that would never be offered in mainstream bookstores are selling millions of copies. Where everybody has fragmented into all types of different niches where there's three rules that content creation is easy. Everybody has a phone. Everybody can create a podcast. Everybody can create a YouTube channel. Everybody can create a movie if they think about it and study a little bit. Supply and demand are connecting now in ways impossible to imagine in the past. I bought extremely spicy almonds from Johnny Scoville and then overlaid on all of that are these recommendations, these filters that help us help us walk down that hill, getting deeper and deeper into niches we didn't even know we cared about. You, know, you start with you start with how to make a knife, then you go down to how to make a sword, then you go down to holy shit, I just built myself a giant suit of armor, and I guarantee there's someone out there right now on YouTube that probably has to keep their day job that teaches you how to build a suit of armor. So what do we do? And we learned a lot. We learned about how the 80-20 rule is important, but you know, with, with the internet now, if it costs nothing and you, you run a business, like, you know, just, just carry everything. What should we do? Well, I'd say nothing drastic, but think about how your job 
your business fits into this giant ocean of gold known as the internet? And if the answer is it doesn't, maybe think about that a little bit. You know, there was a period where I was a financial advisor, but that was such a regulated industry that was, you know, laws that were basically unchangeable were set forth in 1970. And so all of this new innovation, all of this email marketing, all of this stuff that a normal business would participate in was outlawed. And so it was artificially in the 1980s. You know, I had to meet people in person, had to be local. And I realized that the internet is gonna eat that industry. You know, just like in 1990, you could have been a bookkeeper. You could have you know, done people's taxes on the side. And then TurboTax came and just destroyed that industry. And so now, you know, why would anybody ever be a bookkeeper when they can just use TurboTax to do it for 80 bucks a month or whatever? So maybe do something as radical as I did. If you think you're in a dying industry, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. When's the second best time? Today. Maybe consider even leaving. But but if not, because that's reasonable, maybe not, think of some way to get involved in the long tail of the internet. Maybe sponsor a podcast. Like this podcast is sponsored by Wetly Knives. Best knives out there. Custom made, rugged, reliable, lifetime warranty. You know, you could just as easily chop down a tree as cut someone's head off. Uh, he he um, specializes in useful knives, fixed blade mostly, for the the working man. You know, you're out there, you're you're a lineman, or you're out there, you're you know, you're a hunter, or a survival knife, or you're you butchered a, a pig or a deer. Um, take a look at Wetly knives. Google Wetly W E T L I knives, and you'll uh, I promise you'll like them. You got some awesome pictures great guy check it out because maybe you do something like that maybe you, you you dip your toe into online and maybe you send free samples to, t to 10 of your favorite youtubers of whatever your your uh, goods and services are and maybe you sponsor a podcast you like because just if you can figure out somehow some way through force of will luck smarts to tap in to this long tail this internet where no longer are you forced to sell your shit to the local populace and to the city to to these these shows you have to go to to sell your knives no you can sell your goods to everyone in the world because everybody now has a supercomputer in their pocket and everybody can buy your shit so as we close out this this giant book Chris Anderson has taken us down this journey and maybe we don't understand all of it I don't think anybody does right now but if we can recognize and understand the long tail of the internet it's not going away cars are here so let's just open up that door and step on to Henry Ford's big black hard Model T and drive off into the sunset eating a sandwich made of human scales and that's my pretties is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.